0: Well if you'll turn your Bible to Psalm chapter 19 we have before us a very powerful psalm its influence is extraordinary uh including in hymnody we have it having in fact in our course books we have multiple songs being written out of this one psalm and so uh it has a enormous effect in Psalm 19 uh also has uh, some extraordinary truth to communicate to us, and we're going to look at that. It's divided into thirds. I'm praying we get through all of this psalm this week. That is my schedule, my plan. Uh, we'll see how that gets accomplished. But <laughs> we, we have uh, really three divisions. We're going to be talking about uh, the cosmology of the Bible. We're going to be looking at the heavens. We're going to be considering them as they direct our attention to God. It is then going to move from that general revelation to a special revelation which is the law. And We're going to look at the scriptures and how God uh, doesn't just make us uh, uh, responsible for just recognizing his presence in his creation but he has come and communicated something to us for our benefit. And then we're going to see the effect of that on his anointed ones, on his people. And we're going to be really uh, going through some of that element. Hopefully we'll get that far. And the effect of it should be upon us that we walk in righteousness, that there should be both from our witnessing of creation around us and from our understanding of the scriptures that we should be guarding our hearts and lives from sin of various natures and walking in truth and righteousness. This sermon is really not, this is a really bad building. It shouldn't be preached here um, because we're, we need a retractable roof. Open it up, but then we get kind of warm. We're going to be talking about that which we are being sheltered from by this building, and that is the heat and the light of the sun. And that's where the psalmist is going to direct us to, and because that is the witness today of God. And so let's begin there, Psalm 19. We're going to read the entire psalm together. I'll be reading out the New King James Version this morning. God's Word declares, with the exception of the title, which I will derive from uh, the Greek Septuagint, For the end, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. What a powerful psalm. Hopefully as we... Read through that, you picked up on several choruses that are in our chorus book, uh, usually focusing on one verse, (coughs) obviously taking out of context, uh, sometimes over a couple of verses, or the theme of these. And so we come to this psalm, and we have an objective. And the objective is that we have a source to abandon sin, and to walk in righteousness. That's our objective of this psalm. And the psalmist for David is directing us to these elements that we've talked about. They're categorized as general revelation that is available to all men, and special revelation, which is the communication of God specifically to his people and to the world through his people. And so in the category of general revelation, we talk about creation around us. And Paul talks about this in Romans 1, that from the creation of the world, um, these things are known. All the attributes of God are clearly seen in creation. When Paul speaks in Athens, he references it again. He goes again and says there's ample evidence that there is a God, that he is a personal being, and that he wants to have a relationship with you. There is evidence of that. He is not far away from any one of us. If we will simply grope in our darkness for him, he will make his presence known. And so this is general revelation we're talking about. And for the psalmist, he is uh, very possibly at a very early age writing this. Um, This is likely one of his earliest psalms. Um, He spent plenty of time outdoors. He was a shepherd boy, remember, keeping watch over his father's sheep. And so he knew about the courses of the sun and the moon and the stars. In fact, that is... One of the training for them in their work was to be able to navigate not only by the stars, but also to understand the seasons in terms of the sun to know where to take the sheep for pasture. Um, unlike us that would have planted a pasture and, and rotated it and all that, they would have simply shepherded them in a, in a region. And so we come to this with, with the realization that David has extensive knowledge of this as did most of the ancients they didn't wear watches um, didn't use those they used the sun they knew understood what time it was by its passage across the the heavens Uh, they traveled not by maps largely but by the stars and we saw that with the magi at the coming of christ even and so this was a very important and very basic knowledge that all men possessed in the ancient world. And we have lost track of that because we have calendars and clocks and phones and we look down instead of up to see what's going on. When God instructs us to look up, look up. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. So David directs our attention to the sky. Look up. Look up to the heavens. Let's start there. Um, this is something that all of us have an experience with. We try, like I said, many of us try to hide from that. Um, but this is the reality of what makes life on earth. And so we find if we look up into the heavens and we consider something, as we look up, uh, we see the handiwork of God, that his work is accomplished there um, before us. It is evidence there. It is far beyond the works of men. It is far beyond happen ch- chance. It is far beyond all of that. And so we are called to investigate it. The invitation is not to ignore it, take it for granted, or to um, manipulate it through fairy tales and what's falsely called science. And so rather that we are to acknowledge that this is a divine evidence. It is far beyond man to understand, it is far beyond man to control, it is far beyond man to manipulate. Uh, Consider the heavens. So let's turn our attention there. Um, For certainly this evidence is something about God to us. This is God's glory. It is not something we can change. Although one man did on one occasion, as we're going to talk about here shortly. And so the first thing... He tells us about the work up there. He's going to really focus on just the sun. Out of all the things available to him in the heavens, he is going to focus his attention on a single element that's sufficient for his task today because he wants to move on to the law. And so I'm going to try to obey David and hold the same succinctness and try to say what's sufficient to this passage so we can move on to the next portion of it. Because truly we can spend several weeks just on these first few verses about the cosmology of Scripture, and I'm very tempted to do so, and so I'm going to exercise a lot of self-control this morning, I hope. So the first thing we're supposed to look at in the heavens is the work of his firmament. And there is, we are here in the very first verse, we are hit up against something that we have been really poorly informed of, haven't we? Even those in chapter one of Genesis and explains it very clearly, uh, yet we find that men have manipulated it and redefined it. And, uh, the word, though, firmament means exactly what it says, something firm. It is something solid or of some firm nature that is, that is, uh, creating the space underneath it for us to live, move, and have our being. And in Genesis one, we find that the firmament is the residence of several things, the sun, the moon, and the stars, that they are in the firmament. They are in the same uh, realm. That realm is called the firmament. That there's something above the firmament, in addition to that, and that is that. So it would be beyond the sun, moon, and the stars, because they reside, they do their work inside of this thing called a firmament. Now, some have tried to say, well, the firmament is an expanse. And that is nowhere near what the Hebrew word means. It means, and and this word firmament has firm at the beginning for a reason, it is a a, a substantial barrier. That we have a substantial barrier um, within which move the sun, moon, and stars. And when the Bible talks about the heavens being broken open at the flood, it is that firmament that is torn so that something comes from above the firmament, and we know from Genesis what that is, and that is water. That water came from the heavens above. We're not talking about cloud bursts, okay? because that wasn't a thing. Um, by the way, I, I'm, I'm just going to explore this a little bit. I'm sorry, I don't have self-control today. Um, when I, whenever I watch my gardening videos, they always say, it's always better to garden from the ground instead of from the, don't spray water on the leaves of your plants. And I was like, well, that's silly, because the rain, when the rain falls, it falls on the leaves, so that's a natural process. But then I remembered that that wasn't the original process. There was no rain in God's design. That God designed that a mist would cover the earth, that it was groundwater and a mist, and it wasn't rain falling. That was the result of the flood, that we have clouds and rain. That wasn't the case prior to the flood. There was no rain, and the ground was watered by a low-lying mist. And so now I have to go back and say, no, they are correct, that the right way to water plants is from the ground and not from the sky. Because we see the world after the curse of the floods on sin. And so I'm going, trying to water more from the ground than from the sky. And so we have that condition. Well, where did the water come from for the flood? Because it certainly doesn't describe great oceans like we have today. Well, it came through the firmament from the water that's above the firmament as the heavens broke open. And so we know the firmament is something that is holding back something else. And that something else isn't a vacuum. It isn't emptiness. It is water. The Bible explains that very clearly to us. But we want to believe scientists instead of God. Uh, and we call God a liar. Or best, we call them naive. Oh, they're just naive. They didn't know back then. And they only relied upon their observations. I would like to contend with you that God did not rely upon his observations. Because as soon as you say that, you now say this is no longer the word of God, but the word of ignorant men. So either we believe what this Bible says, and recognize its authorship comes from the Almighty who made the heavens and the earth, or we deny it, in which case you deny all of it. Throw it all out. If you're going to rip out a couple of chapters here, including this chapter of Psalm, um, what can't you rip out? And so I choose to believe the cosmology of Scripture, which makes the firmament the, the place in which the sun, moon, and stars are moving. And the Bible, again, describes the earth as sitting on foundations. That is, it's stationary. It doesn't move. And so the sun, moon, and stars are moving. And of course, we know of Joshua's long day. What happened that day? The earth stopped rotating, right? And stopped spinning, right? No, that's not what the Bible says. What does it say? It says the sun and the moon stopped in their courses. I believe the Bible. And I believe this scripture that we're going to be seeing that all this goes on in the firmament, that this is where the activity of the sun, moon, and stars occurs is in the firmament. So it draws, draws our attention that there's something up there that contains the sun, moon, and stars, that they are not enormous, unmeasurable distances away, but rather an unfathomable distance away, but they are just right up there, and that heavenly scene is just beyond the waters that are above the firmament, which the Bible describes as the glassy sea, which is the floor of heaven. Which might explain why the the sky is blue. Just throw it out there. It's not black up there, it's blue. And so we come to this, and we're called upon to consider the firmament as the work of God's hands. And what science fundamentally says is that they deny God. We have no problem Confronting science over evolution, who want to extend time in, in the past uh, forever and make time God so that they just keep going back billions and billions and billions of years until we're all sludge. And that and all came from that. Christian community has stood fast in that respect to confront science and say, Science, you're wrong. You have an underlying uh, philosophy that is anti God and therefore you're trying to deny God's existence. And that is exactly what they're doing, not only with the evolutionary teaching, but with, with, but with Copernican cosmology, is they want to deny God's existence. And the psalmist takes us right back and says, no, the firmament is the work of God's hands. To deny the ferment is to deny God's handiwork. And we should be... Fully realizing that the world will always side with Satan in trying to undermine the very works of God, including his greatest work, which was man. That's why they want to make you less than the image bearers that you are. You're just animals that happen to evolve bigger brains or something. No, we are God's handiwork. We're not going to extract the divine from his activity because then we have meaninglessness, emptiness, a void. So the psalmist calls us to something that we desperately need to look at today and recognize that the firmament is the work of God's hands, and we need to recognize that the biblical account is true, is genuine, and is real science. And now we are going to focus in, particularly um, by the time we get to verse 4 on the sun, this it says, day into day, utter speech, night into night, reveals knowledge, there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Everyone on earth gets to observe the sun, moon, and the stars. What's going on in the firmament is accessible to everyone. There's not an elite group that have a better understanding of it than all of us. What the Bible keeps pointing to is to trust what you see and the evidence that is plainly before you. And that is a very powerful, there's a, there's a kind of science, there's a name for that, um, where we measure things, not by mathematical uh, theory, but by observable activity. And so he invites you, listen, every day you can look up there, you can measure it, you can watch it, and you're going to see the sun, moon, and stars, and every night you can study that. We just aren't students of the, of the firmament. We aren't good students of it. And you go into the ancients, they were all students of it. That's what, you weren't a wise man unless you knew how to read the firmament. That's why they call them the Chaldeans, the wise men. Why did the wise men arrive at Jerusalem and then later at Bethlehem? Because they were reading the heavens. That was by definition, not astrologers, but astronomers. They were watching the heavens, and they knew all the activity was going on there. That was the measure of wisdom in the ancient world. How well do you know the heavens? Now, you guys applaud yourself if you could find the Big Dipper. Okay, well, it's a Big Dipper. How can you miss it? You know, we'll see it up at the Bahamas better than you can here. Um, isn't it interesting that our light pollution keeps us from being observing the stars in their grandeur? Uh, I've had several people that were born and raised in a city, and we take them up there, and what is all this? I said, that's the heavens. That's We call that the Milky Way. Never seen it their entire life. Because we diminish the work of God with the work of men. We want to hide it. And so these men knew it. They, they were students of it. They could examine it, and they recognized when... When things happen, and that's why when this happened, whoa, we gotta find out why did this happen. This is not this is totally unexpected. And whether they were in China or whether they were in Babylon or whether wherever they were, they saw that and they go, Whoa, something big has happened today. Because this is the activity of God, not the activity of man going up in the heavens. But you see, we have trusted in the lies of the evil one, of men, driven by a purpose that is to deny God, rather than to be students of what is observable of the handiwork of God. Day and day, night and night, they tell you things. And we are completely ignorant of it, or largely ignorant of it. We'd be fortunate if we could find the North Star, the Big Dipper, and a few other things, and, and that's tragic. Bible says you're fools. David would have been laughing at you said you don't even know how the heavens are laid out. No wonder. You know what they would call you? Lost. They would call you lost. A fool. Because you can't look up and find where you are and know what direction to go that's called a lost person. When you don't know where you are, you don't know what direction to go. And so our concept of we think we are so smart, but we are actually ignorant compared to the ancients and their knowledge of what was going on in the firmament and who was responsible for it. And so day every day, day after day, night after night, it communicates a message to you. For Israel, in the law that we're going to talk about shortly, um, the only way they knew when the Sabbath was, was to watch the moon. Until they saw a bright, shining full moon, they didn't know when the next Sabbath was. Now that's the moon, this is a new moon, we're going to have a new moon, Sabbath. Okay, seven days from now is the Sabbath, it wasn't a Saturday. Our Gregorian calendar has nothing to do with the moon, it is a solar calendar. and it's not even a very good one at that compared to some things. But we have a lunar thing. You had to look up. Oh, let's see. No, it's a few days so before the new moon. New moon, now I start counting days. So I know when the Sabbath is. And I have to count those moons, and I have to keep track of them so that I know when to offer my sacrifices, and when to celebrate my feasts, and when to plant my seed, and when to harvest my seed. I have to know those things. And we call ourselves the sophisticated ones with greater knowledge, and we don't even know any of that. And so, but it keeps talking. No one's listening, but the heavens keep talking. They haven't ceased in their activity. We have turned from looking at them to doing this and looking at science books. And claim to be smart. Smart when really we are showing our ignorance. Because we cannot go outside and look and know what hour it is. We cannot go outside at night and know which direction is which. But it keeps talking. It keeps talking. Everyone has heard it. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It doesn't matter what culture you are part of. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter anything about your family history, your your societal history, it doesn't matter any of that. All of you have had access to that knowledge, to that speech. Whether you've taken advantage of that is very different. You have access to it, you just have to go outside and look up. It's there. Every one of you have access to it. it doesn't matter how rich you are how poor you are. It doesn't matter how educated you are. You all have access to the to the communication that God is giving to every man on earth of who he is and what he has done. It's all there. When we celebrate Christ's birth on September 11th, you say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible gives us a heavenly description of the, of the specifically the moon and the stars of exactly their alignment when Christ was born. That's in Revelation chapter 12. And we can go through, and if we had any concept, we could identify it, which we can. And you say, well, thanks to computers, um, because computers are smarter than us now, right? We don't know these things. We can't do those things, but we should be able to. And so we know when that happened. And the ancients would have known it because it was such a rare event. They speak. They just keep speaking. They keep uttering to all people the fact that there's a God, that he has done great works, and that he is active today. And that alone should unnerve us, and that's what people want you to you'd be ignorant of. They don't want you to believe that there is a God, that he has done great works, and that he is active today. Because now you have to be answerable to him, don't you? Because you're his creature. Because if he's done all of that in the firmament, he's also keeping us alive and we are answerable to him as we'll see. So yes, I believe that the sun, moon, and stars are in the same place because the Bible says so, that they are in a firmament, that above them is water and below them is an expanse, That and then there's land and water. This is how the Bible describes it very clearly. Well, let's pick on one thing. One thing, and that is he has set a tabernacle for the sun. And so all the world has gotten this at the end of verse 4 it says he has set a tabernacle, where tabernacle is a tent. What is the purpose of a tent? Uh, I would like to say we're going camping, but we're really not going camping, we're we're clamping, right? Is that what it's called? Clamping? Glamping, glamping, sorry, clamping, glamping, because they're not even gonna live in a tent. They're going to be in cabins, which are pretty permanent fixtures. Uh, a tent is a portable residence. It implies that it's moving. Is the earth in a tent? Is it a tabernacle? No, it is a footstool of God, the Bible describes. It is set on its four foundations, the Bible describes. It is s- established that way. What is in a tabernacle, what is in a chariot, what is moving, is the sun. And so it says instead of a tabernacle or a residence place for the son. Verse 5, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. We have two descriptions. And rejoices like a strong man to run its race. We have two descriptions. One is a bridegroom. And the idea is that the bridegroom, uh, we don't often do this very much. We kind of still do it. Uh, the bridegroom would travel. And there would be a great parade in the ancient world. Where the bridegroom would go to get his bride from their his that family and bring it into back home to his family, and it was a substantial event. The uh, Song of Songs, the Canticles describes that for us a little bit. And so he goes out, and the bridegroom with great fanfare is going to go out, and so he's going to get his fanciest little thing to bring his bride home in. Uh, It's going to be carried by his servants or drawn by his horses or donkeys, whatever. He's going to be brought there with all of his clan, his entourage, to celebrate it. They will arrive. He's already paid the bride's price to the family of the bride. And so he's there to collect his prize, his bride. And this journey from his home to the bride's home is what's described here. This is the journey of the sun every day coming out with great splendor. The idea is it's coming out with great splendor. And so the sunrise is a splendid thing, isn't it? I wouldn't know. I don't get up for the sunrise. How many of you do? All right, a few, you're up for the sunrise. Is it as beautiful as the sunsets? Yes, it can be as nice as the sunset. I know we have a mountain on our way here in, here in the valley. Um, but the sun rises with great splendor. He says it's going to come out with great splendor, it's going to set with great splendor. It's going to move through there like a bridegroom moves. Everyone understood what Psalm, what Psalm 19 is talking about, that the sun is going to move from its rising with great splendor and go all the way, and the splendor doesn't decrease as it, as it arrives at the bride's uh, residence. It, it, it maintains itself. The second description he used... Is like a strong man uh, to run its race. At the beginning of race, it's going to come up and there's nothing going to stop. It is determined to run its course. It is determined every day to run its course. Try to stop it. Try to stop the sun. It is determined to run its course. In all of history, only one man really has been able to stop the sun, on behalf of another man, it was moved backwards a little bit. Those two events in God's words are so significant um, that demand your attention, which is why the Babylonians showed up at Hezekiah's door saying, whoa, who are you? and Tell us about your God. It is why in Joshua's long day it established Joshua in the land of the promised for Israel and in the eyes of the people that God would listen to a man's prayer and stop the sun and the moon in its course. And those are the only two times every other day it is determined, just like a man getting ready to run a race, a strong man, he's going to, with the great determination, he's going to complete his course, he's going to do his circuit, his lap, if you will. And yes, while we see the rising and setting, um, it, it's necessarily, they say, well, if, if it, we're not moving, it's moving. Well, yes, it's moving. And it's circuit. A circuit is a circle, generally, or at least a, a regular route. And so we can track the route of that, and, and we should be able to recognize that. And the ancients knew that route. They knew how it moved across the horizon, uh, uh, vertically as well as horizontally. They knew that route. Even in the book of Enoch, it describes it very clearly, and describes it broken up into twelve windows, he says, and which we would call months. And so he understood the routes of the sun could be broken up into 12 sections per anum, and so it was go back and forth like that. And so he recognized that these men weren't ignorant, they were brilliant. And it was all based upon what they could observe and study of God's creation, not from Google. We go to Google and say, "Google, you teach us, Google, you teach us, and it's going to teach you lies." You go to a talking image and say, you teach us, which in Habakkuk chapter 2 says, woe to him. Woe to him who goes to the talking image and says, you teach us. Think about that. That Habakkuk has placed a woe upon you for going to a talking picture and asking them to teach you when you have the entire firmament above you that you are completely ignorant of and refuse to let it teach you. Verse six says, "Its rising from one end of heaven and circled to the other, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." And this exposure is what the psalmist wants to talk about and really link it to the law of the Lord—that nothing can be hidden from the heat of the God, of the sun in the firmament. So as it travels, it is going to penetrate. It is going to uh, envelop the whole world. And so as it moves over its circuit, the whole world is exposed to its light on a regular basis. So we have that expectation and that it heats the world. Now I know you think I can hide from it underground, um, but the fact is without the heat of the sun that becomes a very just becomes a grave. It protects you from some of the heat of the sun, but if without the absorption, it, you become an icicle. That heat is penetrating it, is, it, is, it exposes all men. It says no one is, nothing is hidden from its heat. <clears throat> and this is an important concept to this psalm. Wisdom comes from above, and when you gain the wisdom of God from ex- looking at his creation, it ex- exposes something it exposes you because in the everything, nothing. I'm sorry, and the nothing that's there includes you. You cannot be hidden from its heat. You separate yourself from that sun, you will die. It is one of the sources of life for you, for its warmth is what keeps you alive. And that exposes your vulnerability and your smallness that you are completely dependent upon the handiwork of God in the firmament you have no control over for life. Well, that's general revelation. Now it's going to drive us in the middle section of the psalm. And it seems like it changes course very, very quickly. It's like he just gave up on that, and now he's going to switch to this. But this is a very careful development. Now we're going to go to the law of the Lord. So you have the firmament, You have the heavens declaring God, the glory of God, and that's general revelation for all men. Now, God says, if that is not sufficient for you, if you are so foolish that you won't look up and see my work and glorify me and serve me and humble yourself before me, then I will come and I will give you even something more personal. I will give you more information. That information is in the Old Testament and it's called the law. And so we have this treatise here for five or six verses, six verses, uh, well, five verses that really focus in on that element. The law of the Lord is perfect. And I'm going to read these in in a series, not in parallels. So here we go. The law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are right. The fear of the Lord is clean. Uh, the judgments of the Lord are true. You see that? The command of the Lord is pure. All of it. We have this, series, and now we have the parallel part of it that are going to be what the effect is. But please notice that repetitively, six times, he's going to share that God has communicated to you his law. Now, Paul, again, in Romans, says, what's the purpose of the law? It's to teach us something. What is it to teach us? Is to teach us that God is holy, and we are not. God is perfect. We are sinners. That's the purpose of the law. That's why Israel was trained. That's why all of us need to be trained. In. That's why when I study and memorize the Ten Commandments, that I realize I don't keep these very well. In fact, I don't keep any of them, really. If you get to Jesus' statement that if you hate your somebody, that you're guilty of murder, that if you lust after someone, you're guilty of adultery, and that covetousness is idolatry. Wow. Okay, I'm guilty, 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 guilty. And so God is communicating. Just as I look into the heavens and say, I am small and God is great and I need to humble myself before Him and seek His ways and not my own, so also I come to law and I conclude God is holy and I am a sinner. And I'm going to have to humble myself to Him or I am doomed. Just as I am doomed without the Son, I am doomed without God's intervention for my sin. The law exposes that. And we might say, I don't like that. I don't, that's why I don't like the law. I don't, I don't want there to be a law. I want to make my own laws. And that's what our world is trying to do. We are trying to say that, oh, there is no law of gender. There is no law that's natural law. There is no right and wrong. That Oh, it's just right for you and, or wrong for you. You can't force that on anybody else. Because we don't want to surrender ourselves to the God who has made everything, who is holy, holy, holy. Fundamentally, we are simply trying to hold up our pride. And the psalmist calls to humble ourselves. And so, once we recognize that the law is perfect and pure and good and, and everything of value is there, it's sure it's, there's a confidence, there's a rightness. Uh, we, we just, it endures, it doesn't change. Um, oh, that we would recognize the great value of the law. It was not given to hurt man. It was given to ultimately help man. Because if we do not acknowledge our sin, we will never bend our knee to God. And so there should be in our lives, somewhere in our experience, and hopefully once it starts it doesn't leave us, a tenderness to the law. To say, I have sinned. Please forgive me. I need somehow to remove that sin. And you can't do it yourself. Once you've recognized that, you recognize that I, I can't undo this. I have to simply beg for the mercy of the God who made the sun, moon, and stars. It exposes just as the sun exposes me to its heat, that sometimes is unbearable, like this week, this past week has been pretty hot, Uh, you don't really want to stand out in the sun very much, well, sometimes the law exposes us, doesn't it, like that, and it's almost unbearable, the weight of it, and the Bible talks about the weight of the law, and that's intended to be there, because some people can be sensitive to a little bit of it, and some people takes a lot. But God wants all men everywhere to come to repentance. And so he puts the law there to tell us of our sin, to school us on it. And if we are ignorant of the law, like we are ignorant of the firmament, we are in desperate straits. For means that we have no access to salvation. For where there is no knowledge, there is no fear of the Lord. And we find in verse 9 the fear of the Lord is clean. That is, it is purifying and it endures forever. And so that's the description of the law. That we want to denigrate and say, Oh no, Christ completed the law for us, which is a very important principle. He doesn't destroy the law. He completes the law. He fulfills it. For us because there's no way I could fulfill the law, but he can and did on my behalf. Substitutionary atonement. He is in my place, keeping the law perfectly that I might be given righteousness. So let's look at the parallel to these. Now that we've seen how wonderful the law is, let's look at what it does in verse 7 converting the soul, making wise the simple, verse 8, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, verse 9, enduring forever, true and righteous altogether. This is the effect of the law on mankind. Don't we dare speak evil of it, for its purpose is very clear. I want every sinner to know that they are lawless. They are violators of the law. Whether well, it's the law of men, but ultimately it's the law of God. And so I want to confront them and say, hey, you know, the Bible says this, and and they all want to redefine it. Oh, I don't think... I, no, the Bible says that. You take the name of the Lord your God in vain, God will not hold you guiltless. You are guilty if you take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Even in your... Christian slang profanity right ooh that was too close pastor don't stomp on my toes you know we have our Christian slang profanity you know instead of saying God we say gosh uh, and we even add Almighty and think that's okay because we all know who's there's only one Almighty and that's God himself we replace one letter with one sound and we think we're okay we're not profaning his name We leave off one syllable and we think we're okay. We can say Jesus, but not Jesus. No, these are just profane, just slang profanity. And so the law condemns us. And we are called then to what? To be saved, to be made wise, to be clean, to be enlightened, to be rejoicing, to be enduring, to be true and righteous. The law's purpose in condemning us isn't mean-spirited. And sometimes we get that idea. And that's why when someone wants to confront us about doing something wrong, oh, you're being mean to me, by calling me out for my sin. No. The purpose is beneficial. Because if you're not called out for your error, you will perpetuate in it, and the end result of that is eternal death. You lack God's favor. Do you really want to live your whole life without God's favor? I don't want you to live your life without God's favor. Well, how can I get you to gain God's favor? Well, you have to recognize there's things in your life that don't belong there that are prohibiting God from favoring you. And the best thing you can do is get those out and I would be an evil person not to tell you what you need to get out of your life to gain his favor and that's what we're doing with the world it would be evil of us not to tell the world that what they're doing is sin and it is a front to god and that there is a righteousness that we must meet a uh, standard we must meet and if we don't meet that standard we're doomed it would be horribly selfish not to tell them that they'll get mad at me But my intent isn't to harm them. My intent is to help them. To avoid punishment by showing them their sin. This is the value of the law. Now, do I try to earn salvation by keeping the law? No. That's what the Judaizers do. The legalists do that. I recognize the need for the law is to instruct me in what holiness is and what it isn't so that I recognize where I am weak and where I am being a fool, where I am being selfish, where I am being in sin. We're going to talk about two different kinds of sin in the last, half, last third of this chapter. And so we're called from the law to that, and it's our salvation. And so we go through this progression. It converts the soul, and that is that whole idea of, it's a Hebrew word that becomes almost similar to the whole idea of being born again. Uh, converting is to restore the soul. And David's going to use this in another psalm where he's going to ask for restoration. I want to be made new again. In Jesus' words, born again. I want to be made new. It's going to further make wise the simple. Notice that (laughs) the condition of man without the law is simpleton. I don't care how many degrees are after your name. I don't know how many big wor- care how many big words you know. You are a simpleton if you do not understand the testimonies of the Lord. They are the things that make you wise. For wisdom, it comes from the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. And so true knowledge will lead to this fear of the Lord, which will bring wisdom. And that is derived from the law. We have the firmament. That's a great start and it should get your attention. The world doesn't want you to look at the firmament. The world wants you to look at your device and ignore all the screaming that is going on by the sun, moon and stars every day. Ignore all that. Put the earbuds in so you don't listen to it. Put your blinders on your eyes so you don't see it. And then the world certainly doesn't want you to be exposed to the law, does it? No. We want to hide those commandments. We want to hide the concept that God has something, a higher level of righteousness that we can attain. Because it doesn't want us wise. It doesn't want us to be restored. It doesn't want us rejoicing. Yes, the statue of the Lord, are right, rejoicing the heart. Because when we are restored, when we are given wisdom, there's cause for rejoicing. There's cause for enlightening. Now we can understand so much truth, and now there is cleansing forever and ever. I was not, uh, I'm not going back into the muck, but rather I'm going to be cleansed, I'm going to be walking in righteousness, which is what the psalm is going to get to. All derived from the law. And so that's why in verse 10 he says, More to be desired are they, that is the statutes of God, than gold. Yea, that much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. This is the richest and sweetest thing there is, is to know you're a sinner and that God is holy. Because that wisdom will drive you to your knees. That knowledge will humble you before God. And now you have hope. And only then do you have hope of deliverance. The law won't save you. The law is the precursor to your salvation. It brings the truth. And now when you acknowledge it and you humble yourself before God, just like the heat of the sun uh, will not do the actual regenerating, but it exposes you to your smallness. The law exposes you to your sinfulness. And now, instead of pushing it away and say, I don't want to know about it, you want to embrace it. More desired are those statutes of God than gold, yea, than much fine gold. I want to know God's word more than I want money. More than I want stuff. I want to know God's word. What is the pursuit of your life? Are you pursuing God's word? Because you certainly spend hours and hours and hours a day pursuing a quote-unquote, isn't that interesting, we call it uh, getting money a living? When it's really a slavery? Pursuing more stuff is success when it's really a failure. The world is great about making enticing you with things that aren't, valuable, so you ignore the things that are so precious. Do you desire after God's word with all your heart? Do you pursue it as strongly as you would pursue a big paycheck, a good career? Are you going to pursue that? Are you going to desire after that? If you understood the value of them, then the sweetness of it It's something I see even in children. Once you introduce them to sweetness, they'll never turn it down, do they? I'm sitting there giving out vegetables, giving out nutritious food, and uh, the grandkids are just struggling to get it down. I say, okay, who wants a cookie? Oh, now I can devour it. Oh, that we would look at God's word that way. Oh, you're gonna give me a cookie. You're gonna give me God's word. It's the sweetest thing you can do. Oh, I'm gonna line up for that. Me, 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 me. I want me. I'll take. I'll take two. Can I have two? Huh? Is that your approach to God's word? No. I have to go to church today. I hope he doesn't preach too long, because we don't view God's word as a sweet thing, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. We see it as a sour thing because we don't appreciate its purpose, and its purpose is to make us approve before God, unashamed. Yes, that's out of Timothy. Oh, that we would see the sweetness of even the law, to study it and know it, not to live by it, to try to uh, gain favor with God, but rather to let it instruct us in our own sinfulness that we're going to humble ourselves before God and then that He might lift us up. And so we move forward. <clears throat> Verse 11, Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. We don't think of warning as being connected to reward. And I don't understand why. Um, maybe we just don't have good critical thinking skills. Um, if I give you a warning, if I, if, if I drove up, and my truck was making a really weird sound, and some of you know something about vehicles, so I'm going to pick on Gerald. By drawing, he says, warns me, he says, Pastor, that engine doesn't sound right. And and he says, I'm going to have to take that away from you. And he's done that a time or two. Uh, I'm going to take that to my mechanic. I'll bring it back. Okay? Well, the warning, you know, Oh, you know, I could be mad at him. Why are you telling me that? I don't want to hear those. That's bad news, right? It's bad news. Well, it is because it's going to be very, probably costly, and now uh, I'm going to not have a truck or whatever. Uh, but is he trying to do me evil by warning me about my truck not being running right? No. There's a benefit. And we don't associate warning with benefit. When your parent warns you, don't do that, or else they're not being mean. They're seeking your benefit. When the law says, you don't know what sin is if you don't know me, it's warning you against sin because it's trying to avoid the punishment. What, what Gerald would do would be, I don't want you stuck on the side of the road out in the middle of nowhere between here and Grant's so with a broke-down truck. And no resources, because he knows I don't carry a phone much. So the warning has a beneficial purpose, and we don't think of that, that warning is to is to bring reward. But only if we are attentive to the warning. And that brings us to these last few verses, and my time is gone. I'm going to try to get this last third, and it's sad that I'm only going you to know, spend a few minutes on it. Who can understand his errors? You want to have the words of your mouth be acceptable in God's sight? You want the meditations of your heart be acceptable in God's sight? It has a prerequisite. You have to know God's word and humble yourself before it and seek his face. Don't be like the Israelites who come to the temple to do all the sacrificing when they know that they are disobeying God the rest of the week and think that somehow God is going to approve of their sacrifice. He says, your sacrifices I hate, God tells them. I hate them. I hate your offerings. I hate it all. Why? Because you give it from a false heart. Because you don't serve me every day. You only come and do this religious thing, and then you do whatever you want for the rest of your life. And he says, that I hate. And so I despise your offerings. I despise your sacrifice. The psalmist doesn't want his praises to be rejected by God. He wants them to be acceptable to God. And so he comes to God and says, I have to do it according to your word. I have to walk in blamelessness and innocence. I have to humble myself before your law. I have to bend before the God who made the firmament. Then I can praise Him. How dare we think that our praise to God, no matter how eloquently we speak or sing, is acceptable to God without obedience in the heart and in the life. That in obedience not to what we think God demands, but what truly God demands. And that requires something of you. You have to know God's Word. And this is all directed to the Lord, our strength and our Redeemer he is the one who is going to purchase us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We have not done justice to this text today, but you have uh, struck us with its truth. And we pray that we might be more attentive to your created order and acknowledge you and pursue a knowledge of this world that is evidence of you and not against you. Lord, we pray we might pursue your word and know it better. Help us, Lord. There are so many distractions of this world, so many shortcuts that we are called and invited to take. Instead of just struggling with your word and reading it and meditating on it, studying it. Lord, help us to guard our time and attention that we might pursue your truth. But Lord, not to elevate ourselves, but to humble ourselves. My walk in your righteousness, we know that we cannot do it of our own strength. We pray for your help, for you are our God, our strength, and our Redeemer. And it's in your name we pray, amen.